While everybody is taking their seat, let me run over some announcements real quick as we get ready for our study in First Peter. The annual rained out picnic has been rained out again, so we'll try again for October. But it's uh, been, uh, since I started watching the like 10-day forecast or two-week forecast, it was 40%, went to 100% four or five days ago, and just now I looked at it and it was 80%. So that pretty much tells me it's going to rain. <laughs> so rather than do that, we can just go back to whatever we normally have planned. Now, Tuesday night I announced that we'd have men's prayer breakfast, but we're not going to have men's prayer breakfast. Uh, Tuts is still in the hospital and I wanted to take a little uh, something off of Alan's responsibility, so we're not going to have the men's prayer breakfast. We're just going to have the deacons meeting, so you guys pay attention. Instead of at 9, we'll meet at 8, and that way Alan's freed up by 9 o'clock for, for whatever he needs to do the rest uh, the rest of the day. So please be in prayer for, for Tuts that she will improve. The latest word was that she improved a little bit the first couple of days, but not since. Also, a reminder, Camp Arete is July 14th to 20th, and uh, we need some uh, uh, scholarships are available, and so folks need to sign up and go to Camp Arete, that's camp, A-R-E-T-E dot com. Then also, Wayne House and I are hosting a trip to Egypt, 10-day trip, December 26th to December 5th, which also includes a cruise on the Nile. And if you would like to go, there's information, and the brochure is on the on the website, and it is a $500 uh, deposit, and the uh, a deadline is set up for May 1st. But if you want to sign up after that, that's I will tell you that will not be turned down. But we do need to get a a deposit gives us a pretty good idea of how many will be along, and that's what we need. Uh, to know is how many are going for sure. And a deposit sort of tells you that story on that. So if there are any questions, you can uh, email into the website and ask me the questions, that sort of thing. Now, this coming week is is what is usually observed in the history of Christianity as as, uh, Holy Week or Passion Week. It's the last week of the life of Christ. And last year we finished up Matthew... I finally was able to pull a lot of things together on that. One of the things that I have learned in my reading is that throughout most most of Christianity, uh, most Christians throughout the history of Christianity and today observe several things during that week from observations on Palm Sunday uh, throughout the week, Good Friday, and then uh, Resurrection Day. And this is important because this is a center of Christian faith. Without Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're all fools. There's nothing for us. And so this is the center of our faith, what we believe the foundation of our faith. And so what I'm going to do is do a special series starting this Sunday and going through to the next Sunday, which is the... um, which is Resurrection Day. So what we have on what's known as Palm Sunday is the presentation of Christ. And so we'll go through not just the chronology of what was happening, but its its significance for us. There's a um, uh, 
uh, just watched it on Netflix uh, a couple of nights ago, that there's a recently made uh, video that's up there, and I can't think of the actor's name now, um, but he was in Downton Abbey, uh, the main guy, what's his name? Anyway, what? Bonneville, Hugh Bonneville. And he, uh, he narrates it, and you see him going around Jerusalem. And I like a lot of the way that they did it. You just watch anything that's on TV. It's, it's kind of offbeat on a few things and introduce a few ideas, but it wasn't as egregious as most. So um, you have a lot of those kinds of things. So we're going to look at actually what the Bible says without any, any bad things slipping in. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord, uh, cleansed of sins, forgiven, in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, walking in the truth so that we can have a spiritually profitable time this evening in the Word of God. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. My fathers, we learned tonight you are the God of all grace, and you have been so gracious to us. You have been so good to us, to us who do not deserve anything, for we, are at, we were born spiritually dead in enmity with you, and yet you have done everything to redeem us, to give us new life, to justify us, and all that we do, need to do is accept it to believe it as a free gift, no strings attached. And, Father, we're so thankful for that. And the way in which you supply all of our needs in Christ, no matter what we face in life, no matter how horrible, no matter how, how painful, no matter how difficult, you s- sustain believers in the midst of those adversities. And that's what Peter is all about, to encourage us and strengthen us because you are the one who ultimately strengthens us and provides for us. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you will help us to understand these things again and be challenged and encouraged to apply them in our life. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, and tonight we're going to look at verses 10 and maybe briefly at 11. As you can tell, there's only three more verses after that, so we'll be wrapping Peter up pretty quickly. And then, if you had not figured it out yet, we'll be going into Second Peter right after First Peter. So tonight we're looking at the principle that God is always sufficient for our adversity. That means, you know, some people translate it, he's enough. Enough means you don't need anything more. He is more than enough. His, his omniscience knew every problem, every adversity, every persecution, every uh, difficulty that we would ever face. And so he has provided for that in his 
omniscience, he knows everything, and his omnipotence, he provides for everything. And he has given us his word to give us the guidance and the d- direction on all of that. And so um, we're going to look at the context. We basically wrap up the, uh, the basic concluding section in verse 9, and then we have this last, these last two verses that really do a good job of wrapping it up. In, um, in, in the fifth chapter, there's this emphasis on the fact that there will be undeserved suffering. Suffering comes in basically two broad categories, deserved and undeserved. Deserved is because we, uh, we encounter that which is the result of our own bad decisions. That can be enhanced by divine discipline, and it is uh, deserved suffering. And then the other category is undeserved suffering, which may have a number of different causes. And in this epistle, that is primarily what Peter is talking about, is these believers, Jewish background believers, living in the center, north center area of what is today Turkey, were going to be facing a certain amount of opposition, rejection, persecution to one degree or another. And so he is giving them the instruction in First Peter as to how they should face this, the mental attitude that is built on the Word of God that is necessary in order to handle any of these kinds of, of tests or adversities or situations, whatever it may be. And when you come to the end of this main main concluding section from verse 1 down to verse 9. In verse 8, there's the warning that ultimately behind all of this is the, is the devil. And we talked about that. We spent time looking at Job. We looked, looked at how, um, how our suffering is related to the angelic conflict. And so Peter warns, be sober, be vigilant. Be sober means to think clearly and objectively, which is based on the word of God, Be vigilant means to be watchful, to pay attention. Don't just sort of drift through life um, on neutral, but pay attention to what is going on around you because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the example of that, of course, is Job. And then he says, resist him. That's the conclusion, to resist him. It's a defensive concept. It's the idea that we saw when looking at Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through uh, 18, the idea of putting on the full armor of God. And three times in that section you have a form of this word to resist or to stand against or to defend against. And we do so by standing steadfast by means of what we believe, by means of the body of truth that we hold to. And so in order to be able to stand fast by the body of truth, we need to know what that is. We need to learn it and learn it and learn it. And it's amazing to me how many people who think that they have somehow grasped this are so far from it, yet they, they think that they, because they've grown up in church and they've been exposed to it by a good pastor, that somehow they've internalized it. I know of people who think that because they listen to a good pastor teach the word, that that means that they've internalized it. But there's a, there are different levels of internalizing the word, and until it becomes a reflex action, uh, so that when you encounter a situation, you don't have to think about your response. 
You just automatically do it because you've trained and trained and you've, you've practiced and practiced and practiced in every little situation in life so that it becomes uh, second nature to you. So we have to know the truth. That's why we have to constantly be reading the Bible, memorizing promises, learning the principles that are articulated again and again, watching and observing the uh, great heroes of the faith and how they failed or how they succeeded. So we, we are warned to, are told to resist him, that is Satan, steadfast by means of the faith because we know that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He plugs it in at this point to the body of Christ. And that's important for what is about to be said in, uh, in the next verse. So in verse 10 we read, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we look at what is going on here, this is his final wrap-up statement. It's interesting the words, the vocabulary, the, the statements he makes here because it it goes back and picks up key ideas that run throughout First uh, Peter. So we'll begin by looking at verse uh, verse 10. May, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory. We'll start with that first phrase, but may the God of all grace. So the first thing we see in the passage is that God is the God of all grace, not some grace, not a little grace, but of all grace. That goes back to the principle that we keep seeing again and again in the scriptures is the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's power, the sufficiency of God's truth, God's word. We don't need to look to psychology to find out how human beings tick, how human beings work. We have to look to the word of God because most modern psychology does not have a good understanding of the sinfulness or the wickedness of man. And they don't understand the dynamics of sin. And we see that today when we're facing so many of these issues that are related to sexual identity and gender identity and those who are involved in homosexuality, those who are involved in transgenderism. How do they get that way? Well, it's, you either get that way because, A, you're born that way, or you get that way because you've made a lot of seemingly, this is really important, seemingly unrelated decisions. Okay, that's important because when we get into carnality and we're just letting our sin nature roar and rip, the decisions that we make in rebellion against God may not appear to have anything to do, especially if we're children, may not have anything to do with how that sin nature matures and manifests itself when we get into our adolescent post-puberty years. But we set certain mental patterns very early on that begin to have certain effects on us. And they're not going to be the same with everybody. Okay, so we can't put this in a laboratory and say, if you make A, B, C, and D decision, 
when you're five years old, then that's going to result in this kind of uh, sexual perversion when you're older. It is a matrix of evil that begins to develop and ground in our sin nature. And so the human solutions that are out there do not take into account the evil of the human heart. Jeremiah says the heart is, is, is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Above all things, nothing in the world is more deceitful and wicked than your own sin nature. And it dupes you, it dupes me, it dis, it's, we get into arrogance, which involves self-deception. And so we, we, we can't even accurately understand ourselves unless we go to the mirror of God's word and accept what it shows us uh, to be the truth. And God then gives us the solution that solves those problems. And of course, we don't get to hear on the news or in any media unless you're watching Christian media uh, the stories about people who overcome the most incredible things in their life uh, in these particular areas, and they change. But one of the challenges that we face now as Bible believers is the huge number of organizations and people arrayed against the truth of God's Word who, who want to make it illegal to challenge uh, sexual identity and uh, transgenderism and all of these other things because their assumption is man is, is just made of matter. There's no volition. There's no immaterial soul. There's no sin nature. And so you're just determined to be this way by your genetics. You're just determined to... And there's no evidence for this whatsoever. There is a myth out there that there was a uh, homosexual gene that was discovered back in the 90s, and that never happened. It was a complete distortion, and you can do some searches on that on the Internet, and you can find where the study was completely biased and was debunked within a couple of years. That goes back to the early 90s. But the point is that no matter what we face, no matter how overwhelming it may be, no matter what the pressure may be, whether we're dealing with issues related to mental attitude, sins of anger or jealousy or fear or worry, God's grace is always sufficient no matter what the sin is. And that's what what Peter is emphasizing here. Now, a couple of things we have to look at in this verse have to do with just some, some technical issues. There's a couple of differences you may see in your translations. In the New King James and the King James, it translates it, but may the God of all grace. If you look at how the New American Standard, the ESV, NIV, and others will translate, they translate it not as a potential here, but it translates it with an indicative verb, and there's a dis- there is a textual issue on the first verb. It's translated perfect, but in... Uh, a few uh, manuscripts, uh, and I think in the majority text at this point, looking at my notes, yeah, in the majority text, and this is one place I think it's wrong, it lists this as a verb that is in the optative, which indicates potentiality or wishfulness, so that's why it's, it's translated but may. 
But all of those verbs that are listed in a row here that are translated perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, the other three are all in the future indicative. And so it is. it makes more sense in the text to translate that first verb uh, not as, but may God perfect you, but God will perfect you. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. He will uh, settle you. And so that is, that's the first thing. And then the other thing is that you will see in some translations, uh, instead of you, it has us. And you may not think that makes a lot of difference, but we have to try to get as close to the original as possible. And it is uh, most likely that it's you, Paul. I mean, Peter is talking to his audience here and uses a, a second-person plural there. So he, em- he starts off by emphasizing grace, but may the God of all grace who called us. Now, the subject of this sentence is God, the God, hatheos. And then the main verb comes at the end in terms of these four verbs, translated, perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. Everything else is sort of secondary to the main idea. The main idea is God's the one who will, uh, he will restore us. That's really the idea of the word perfect. If you're familiar with translations and you read the word perfect, you may think that that's referring to teleao, which means to mature. Uh, Teleao and its cognates all relate to maturity or completion. And I would say... 90, 95% of the time are translated with uh, perfect or perfect. But here it's a different word altogether, and it has the idea of will restore you. There is a future orientation to much of Peter, and especially here that this future orientation is that no matter what happens in this life, when we stand before Christ at the Bema seat, when we get our resurrection body, when we face the circumstances and situations in heaven of absolute perfection, no matter what we have gone through in this life, it's just going to pale in insignificance. And that's where the verse goes at the end uh, where he said, talks about eternal glory and after you have suffered for a while. A while is just a short time and in comparison to the fact that it produces eternal glory. So there's a contrast there between eternal and a short time. So the emphasis at the beginning is on the character of God. Grace is a function of God's love, his perfect love. Uh, there, He is always loved. When we talk about the essence of God, we talk about his sovereignty, his righteousness, his justice, his love. We think in terms of these for just sort of academic reasons. We isolate them, but they all come together in a mix in anybody's person. You may have a lot of different attributes about you and your character, but they're all blended together in you as one person. The same is true with God, so that his love is just. He has a righteous love. It is a just love. It is a loving righteousness and a loving justice. And for many who do not understand the Bible and the critics of the Bible is they want to separate these and 
you all, you've all heard them talk about the God of the Old Testament is a harsh, righteous, just God, and then we come to the New Testament and we find that he's a God of love. And that's ignoring a tremendous amount of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. God is perfectly righteous, and he's perfect love, and they fit together. So he has a righteous love and a loving righteousness. And it is out of his love that we have his grace. It is unmerited favor, unearned favor. He freely has provided all of these things to us. And this is a major thought throughout Peter. And just there are um, ten times that the noun uh, charis is used in Peter. So that tells us right away. In fact, I'm going to emphasize three words that are used in this verse that are all used ten times throughout Peter. And that tells us this is a major idea, a major thought in the epistle. And we think back to the introduction to his uh, salutation, grace to you and peace. Those aren't just polite words. He's talking about the fact that that <clears throat> God is the one who will give us grace and peace, and that this is not only the foundation for our eternal life, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is saving grace, but there is also grace for spiritual life. Others have broken that down into different categories, but God's grace applies to our initial salvation. It applies to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, and it applies to our death when we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. So from the beginning, Peter is emphasizing grace. After he gets through the opening uh, introduction, which is interesting, and we'll come back and look at a few verses before verse 10, but by the time you get down to uh, verse 10, he's mostly gone through his opening introduction, and he now says, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. See, he's, he's emphasizing this, and this is coming out of a section where he's talking a lot about end-time rewards. And so what enables us to be able to survive the adversities and persecution in this life is this grace that comes to us. Then just a couple of verses later in verse 13, when we start into the uh, first major section of the epistle, he says, Therefore, in light of what he has said in the introduction, gird up the loins of your mind, that is, uh, straighten out your thinking, get rid of the distractions, be sober. We saw him repeat that at, we, at, there at the end, that when we're uh, facing the roaring lion, we are to be sober and watchful. It's the same word. We're to pay attention and think Uh, biblically think objectively and rest your hope that hope always focuses on our end time goal hope is a a future that is certain it's not wishful thinking we use hope as if it's well i hope it won't rain on on saturday but i guess it it looks like it will and so we won't have the picnic so we we're not sure hope is wishful optimism but in the bible it is a certainty a certain expectation 
So we rest our hope fully on what? On grace, on God's unmerited favor to us. That's what gets us through this life to the end game. And that grace is not something we've experienced right now, but it's that which will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the second coming. That's the end game. We're living today in light of eternity, and eternity breaks open for us when we are absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, and then we stand before him uh, at the Bema seat, which is the first thing that happens following the rapture. And I'm skipping a number of uses of grace just to give you a uh, an idea of the significance of it by picking a few verses. In 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a gift, minister to one another. So we are to serve one another. We're to minister to one another. As we serve the Lord, we serve one another as what? As good stewards, that is, as responsible, those who responsibly possess and understand the manifold grace of God. So we've received, we are the, we've received the grace of God, we're beneficiaries of the grace of God, and so we have a responsibility to tell others about the grace of God and to demonstrate the sufficiency of God's goodness, His grace, His undeserved merit to us in the midst of any kind of persecution, disappointment, heartache that we might, we might face. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, that is, the leadership of the church. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. You cannot be submissive to one another if you don't understand grace. You can't submit to authority if you don't understand grace. Uh, Grace demands humility. It is submission to someone who is in authority, and in the human realm at times, that is submission to someone who may not be right someone who may be wrong, somebody who doesn't have the best idea. You may have a much better idea, but we submit to someone who is in authority because that's what God has told us. That is the right thing to do. So we are to be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? And then we have a quote from the Old Testament. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. If you are trying to be submissive to somebody who is not a good leader, not a good authority, and it's difficult, God will give you grace to handle the problem. God will spot. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it means it's not going to be impossible as long as we stay focused upon the Lord. And then we come to the uh, next paragraph in this, uh, in the conclusion where we have the final greetings by Paul. And he says, by, by Silvanus, that's Silas. Silvanus is the Latin form of the uh, Aramaic Silas. By Silas, or Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, this is the same Silas who was on the missionary trips with Paul. I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So here he defines what he's talking about as the true grace of God. Now we'll get into talking about that verse a little more the next time. But if we skip to the next chapter, which is the first chapter in the second epistle, at the very opening of that epistle, Peter makes one of the profound statements 
uh, in the Word of God. He says, God's divine power has given to us most of the things that pertain to life and godliness. Is that what it says? No, it's all things. It doesn't leave anything out. God and his omniscience provided everything that pertained to life, and that word indicates just our regular physical, biological life and godliness. That's our spiritual life. It's the uh, Greek word eusebeia. Now, through, and it's through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, that is, by that uh, calling, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. See, when we look at life and we're faced with all the disappointments and the heartaches, we're faced with all kinds of things that get all stirred up inside of us because of our sin nature. We have anger, we have hatred, we have resentment, we have fears, worries, all of these other things. And then we face the fact that we may be living in an environment where there is increasing opposition to Christianity. And this is happening today. You can see it in a number of of college, university campuses. I've read uh, reports related to what's going on at, at Yale, which was founded as a school to train pastors originally, uh, one of the greatest uh, theologians. I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but he was a, a, the last considered last of the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was president of Yale, not for long because the Lord took him home soon after he got the appointment, but uh, we look at these schools, and they're taking official stands against Christians. And when they invite Christians to speak on campus or groups invite Christians to speak on campus, then those who promote a lot of the perversions that are being legitimized by the Supreme Court today uh, see that Christian, Bible-believing Christians are going to speak on campus. They riot, and they, uh, they, they protest, and they cause all kinds of problems. And the next step is personal attacks, personal, uh, physical, violent attacks on Christians and Christian students just because they're Christians. And the same thing is happening uh, with with Jews. And I meant to tube it up and got distracted earlier and did not do it, but maybe we'll show it at the end of class. There's a video that just uh, was done by somebody. It's three minutes long, and it's uh, there was a... Uh, a rally or conference at um, University of North Carolina and another North Carolina school, and they um, uh, and it was all about the the Israel and Gaza and all how to solve the problem with with Gaza, and they legitimize Hamas. They they just bash Israel the whole time uh, to the point where they become overtly anti-Semitic, expressing their hatred of Jews. The very fact that Jews exist on the planet is a testimony to God's grace in calling Abraham. The very fact that Christians, no matter what you say, no matter whether you're liberal, whether you're conservative, if you say you're a Christian and you stand for Christ, then you're hated. You don't have to say anything. I've experienced that as a pastor, is just because it was known that I held certain positions that were not something that some people uh, believed in. Their hatred, their vilification and bitterness toward me was just unbelievable. 
And we have to understand that just because we are identified with Christ, that we're going to be the butt of this kind of hatred and this kind of opposition. And there's only one source for power. There's only one source for grace and mercy and ability to handle those kinds of situations. And they may even end up in our death at some point. But the only way we handle them with the right mental attitude, with peace and calm, is from the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't find that kind of stability by the support from our friends. You're not going to find that kind of strength from your family necessarily. You may not have any people around you whatsoever. You may be completely isolated, as some people have been throughout the history of the church, isolated in solitary confinement in some prison where you're uh, punished and beaten and tortured uh, just because you're a Christian. And we're not going to find the strength to handle those things because we have a certain number of likes on our social media. We're not going to be able to handle it because we have a, a lot of people who who like us uh, because we've been successful in business or because we have um, uh, we we have um, we have people who who support us. We have all of the things that that the world says you need to have in order to make it in life. You have status symbols and. And other people seek to handle those situations through alcohol or through drugs. They just try to escape or, or they try to minimize the pain. And what Scripture says is we're going to face pain in this life because we live in a fallen world. And the way to get through it is through the Word of God, which is going to sustain us, and not through something that deadens or dulls or uh, minimizes uh, the, the uh, pain and the difficulty uh, through drugs or something else. Only God can sustain us. Three things are important. First of all, at salvation, we have to realize that only a, a relationship with God is going to be able to sustain us. We have to get to know God, and that only comes through the Scriptures. Second, we have to grow. It's not just a matter of acquaintance with the basic beliefs of Christianity we have to have profound spiritual growth, which comes by applying the word on a regular basis. It, it's, it's a drill. Those of you who've ever been in the military know that you're drilled again and again and again until you can't forget how to respond or react in a situation. You think of people who are first responders, whether they're police, whether they're emergency medical technicians or whatever they may be, they have gone through those drills and practiced them again and again and again so that when they hit a real-life situation, they know exactly what to do, and they don't have to stop and think about it and say, well, wait a minute, let me get the manual and let me figure this out. And there's too many Christians who, well, let me get the manual, and they're not quite sure where their Bible is, and so it takes them even by then, they're, they're just devastated. So we have to grow by means of the Spirit. And third, we have to be trained in the spiritual skills. We have to recognize that uh, we don't depend on any creaturely thing for as a crutch. We have to put on the full armor of God. Now, a lot of people have used different metaphors, modernized those metaphors, whatever, but we have complete protection from the Lord. New Testament, Paul uses the term armor. It's also used in the Old Testament, but we have promises like Psalm 18.2. Look at all of these terms that are used to describe God as a protector. 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The word there for stronghold is the word matzadah, for which is uh, anglicized to masada. And whether it's talking about Masada itself or just a stronghold in the wilderness, we're not sure, but that's the idea. God protects us in Psalm 71.3. The psalmist prays, Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And then Psalm 91.2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. And then last Psalm 144.2, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. These are great promises to memorize and to uh, pray back to God. He is our protector, our fortress, and our our refuge. The second thing we see in 1 Peter 5.10 is that God has called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Now that term called us is a very interesting term. It can refer to something that is simply an invitation that God has invited us And he's not just invited us, but he has invited others. Going back to Matthew chapter 20, where you have the the parable of the the wedding feast, where the father sends out uh, invitations to everyone and they reject it. And that's talking about the rejection uh, of Israel. And then he uh, says, now go to all those in the highways and byways and invite them. Uh, The first group doesn't accept. That's the only time you have a use of will, of anybody's will in the passage. They reject the call. So what happens in Calvinism is you get this idea of irresistible grace, and this is often read into the idea of God's calling, that he only calls those whom he has elected. But how does God call anyone? I think this is seen clearly in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So this is talking about the unbeliever. It's reflecting from Isaiah. How shall they call upon someone in whom they have not believed because they aren't saved? And then he develops that idea a little further and says, well, how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? heard. So to believe, you have to hear about God. There has to be a message. And how shall they hear, how shall they get the message uh, without a preacher? And the word there means someone who proclaims the message. And how shall they proclaim, this is talking now about the messenger, how shall they proclaim the message unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach or proclaim the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. See, it puts the emphasis there on their choice 
to disobey the gospel. The gospel is a command, as Paul states it in Acts 16.31, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the emphasis here is the way they are called is through the invitation of the gospel message, the invitation, the calling that comes through the proclamation of the apostolic message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John twelve thirty two, we have another dimension to this. The very fact that Jesus was raised up on a cross is a call to the world to come to him. Jesus said, I and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. It is the cross, it is the gospel that draws people to him. There's another passage that is also frequently cited and frequently used to defend this idea of irresistible grace. Much in the context is ignored. It's not an easy passage to deal with. But Jesus says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit here, but this is the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace goes to this passage and says, see, God is going to irresistibly draw you. But it doesn't say that, and, and I will raise him up the last day. The next verse is usually ignored. The next verse is the important one. It is written in the prophets. So the Old Testament states the basis for that drawing. Same thing we saw in Romans chapter 10. As they shall all be taught by God. It, how are they taught by God? They are taught by God through the proclamation of the truth of God's revelation. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. See, there are those who refuse to hear and refuse to learn. But those who hear and learn and believe on the gospel will come to Christ. One of the well-known earlier 19th century uh, Greek scholars in England was Dean uh, Henry Alford, and he writes about this passage that this drawing is not irresistible grace. This is confessed even by Augustine himself. And remember on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, I was talking about how Calvin and Luther were well-schooled in Augustinian theology, as were the other reformers, and that shaped their views of uh, predestination and election as well as uh, the drawing here. And so he said, even Augustine, the upholder of the doctrines of grace, said, if a man is drawn, says an objector, he comes against his will. And Augustine's answer to that is, we answer, if he comes unwillingly, he does not believe. If he does not believe, he does not come. For we do not run to Christ on our feet, but by faith, not with the movement of the body, but with the free will of the heart. Think not that thou art drawn against thy will. The mind can be drawn by love. This is one of his earlier, uh, Augustine's uh, earlier writings. So, this is what we see. Now, the third point that we see in this passage is that this eternal glory will cause us to completely forget our limited suffering in this life. Even if you are tortured beyond consciousness, even if you are burned alive at the stake, 
you you will when you are in heaven in resurrection body not even remember it it will pale in insignificance to the glories that we that we will face uh, face in heaven the focus is on that eternal glory and glory is another one of those words that peter uses throughout this epistle to refer to that future state that is accomplished for us by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The glory of, uh, of our future will not be revealed until his return. So once again, we're drawn to the fact that we are to handle current suffering, current adversity in light of the future, in light of what uh, the future, uh, future life will be like when we are in heaven. We have a few verses that I wanted to remind you of. Uh, ten times glory is used in First Peter. First Peter one seven tells us that the, it, it's already talking about the fact that our faith is tested, it's evaluated. Dokimazo here in our um, Dokimian in First Peter one seven, which means to evaluate our our faith. That is our doctrine that the evaluation of our faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the testing by fire there is a testing that comes as a result of persecution. It's just a metaphor talking about that persecution that is that is going to come to these who are the recipients of uh, Peter's epistle, these uh, Jewish background believers. Now, if you read through that first part of 1 Peter, this is exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about inheritance. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy... There we have another word, but it's still emphasizing grace, has begotten us again to a living hope. That's our future certainty of salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith, Uh, for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So the focus in those verses is all about uh, being prepared for eternity and talking about that inheritance that we will have that is revealed. That's what 1 Peter 1, 7 is talking about, this glory that's revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's at the second coming. So we're living today, again, in light of eternity, and that preparation... Uh, for the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 11, talking about uh, the prophets again, uh, they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Those glories are that which is in heaven, that which has eternal eternal value. Then in 1 Peter one twenty one. now this is an interesting verse here because of 
because of the context. The context really starts in verse 18 because we know that we were redeemed. Uh, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from our empty manner of life, received by tradition from your fathers. That empty manner of life, that phrase tradition of your fathers refers to the Jewish oral tradition. But with the precious blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so it is that emphasis first on redemption and Christ as the spotless lamb of God, referring to, alluding to the Passover lamb, who through him, then in verse 21, skipping verse 20, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Glory is a, uh, is a fact of what we, what we have after we die, after phase three when we go into heaven or after at the end of phase two, so that our faith and our hope are in God. And then we have a number of examples in chapters two through four that talk about different areas where believers have undeserved suffering. Some involve being in situations where they have to serve a an unbelieving master as a slave, an unbelieving husband as a wife uh, in a difficult circumstance due to the politics of the situation. And then near the conclusion in 413, Peter says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Now, that's an interesting phrase because when we are going through life and living for him, we're going to face adversity. That's what this is talking about. So we partake of Christ's sufferings. We also will suffer as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when his glory is revealed, that's at the second coming. You may are at the rapture for believers in the church age. You may also be glad with exceeding joy. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, this talks about the glory that will be revealed. Uh, Peter says, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Every time we see this word glory, it seems to focus on what will happen when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, either at death or at the rapture. And when that glory appears, then whatever suffering we've gone through is just forgotten and minimized. And this is reiterated in 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. So there is a reward for those who have joined Christ or shared those sufferings, the rejection, the hostility, the persecution. Now, this reminds us of a, of a verse over in in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and this is one that is uh, misunderstood by a number of people simply because, and we've gone over this many times, because of the way it's translated and the way it is punctuated in the, in the English. There's no punctuation in the Greek. You derive your punctuation from looking at the Greek syntax and, and the Greek uh, structure that is uh, that is here, and so when we look at verse sixteen, we're just to we're told the Spirit Himself who indwells us. 
already established in the chapter, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That may be just a sense of of assurance or confidence. I know some people who think it's some sort of verbal communication, something like that. It may be just interior, but I don't think that bearing witness necessitates that there is any kind of of um, specific communication. It can be nonverbal. It can be just a sense of assurance and confidence that we're saved. And then it goes on to say in verse 17, and if children, then heirs. So all children of God will have some sort of inheritance. Now, the way it's punctuated, it looks as if heirs of God, I put a comma after God where it should be. Uh, usually the, the, there's just a comma that comes after Christ so that heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ appear to be the same thing, that they are synonyms. But it, it, it's, it's on the basis of the content of the conditional clause as well as the grammar, we have to reject that. In the Greek, there's an interesting uh, way of talking about, uh, about two different alternatives. And what it will do is introduce the first alternative with this Greek word, M-E-N, men, and then... When it introduces the second alternative, it uses this word, de, and it's referred to by Greek scholars as a men-de construction. And so you can have, uh, you have an alternative, and it should be translated if on the one hand you have this set of facts, but on the other hand, this set of facts. So it's talking, it shows that it's talking about two different things. That's just evident. They're not talking about synonyms. You're talking about things that are different. So it should be translated, if children, then heirs. On the one hand, we're heirs of God, comma. All believers are heirs of God. And de. On the other hand, that indicates it's something different. On the other hand, joint heirs with Christ. Now, it's really funny because even in, among pe- people in the free grace camp, there are people who want to make both of these the same. The one problem is they can't answer that mendec construction, which makes it clear it's two different things. The other is this, this conditional clause, that it's conditioning this airship on suffering with Christ. Now, not every believer is going to go through suffering. There are people who are going to believe in Christ, and they're going to grow just a little bit, and then they're going to die. They're going to die young. They, they're not really positive. They never grow spiritually. Uh, they may be like the thief on the cross, and they, die. They, they believe in Christ and then die right away. So there's no suffering in relation to their Christianity. But that if clause says that if heir of God and joint heir with Christ belong to every believer then it's conditioned not on belief in Christ alone, but it's conditioned on belief in Christ and suffering with him. Now, the gospel is is a free gift. We believe in Christ and we are saved. Some are going to grow and serve the Lord. Some are going to not grow. Those who not grow are heirs of God. Those who grow and suffer, they, they will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and they are the ones who are going to have this second inheritance that is based on suffering with Christ. That's what Peter's all about, going back and reading that initial part from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, 
talks about that very fact, that inheritance, and it's this inheritance that is conditioned on right response in adversity where it's clear that we are being, we're facing opposition and persecution on the basis of our, our belief in Christ. And so this, this becomes very clear, and we're going to face suffering. This is what Peter's emphasizing in these verses, uh, verses uh, chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. For this is commendable. That word translated commendable is grace. This is a sign of grace, as it were. Uh, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrong, wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you do wrong and you suffer the consequences, that's not what we're talking about. But when you do good and you suffer, if you take it patiently, this is uh, dealt with by grace from God. It's the same word, charis uh, there. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. That is, you serve the Lord, and if adversity or suffering or persecution comes your way, then you just handle that by trusting the Lord. 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. See, that's these tests related to uh, suffering in relation to Christ. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. That's taking us back to the judgment seat of Christ and inheritance and rewards. So then we come to the fourth point in this verse, and that, that is that God will completely stabilize us, protect us, provide for us, and guard us in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves. These are the four words in the Greek. There's katartizo, uh, sterezo, uh, stenaso, uh, stenao, and themeliao. Okay, I got a new. They redid the program update on major update on accordance, and I still haven't figured out how to get the dictionary form of the Greek to show up like it used to. So I'm I'm still working with that. But anyhow, so the idea in katartizo at the very beginning is to mend, to restore something, to create something, or to strengthen it. It it is the idea that we've gone through this suffering, and then when we are face-to-face with the Lord, God is going to restore us. He is going to mend us from all the heartaches and all the suffering and there will be no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pains, for the old things will have passed away. God will put things right, and we will know that justice has been served, and God has dealt justly with those who unjustly persecuted us. The second word in the list is uh, sterizo. It is a few, all of these are future tenses, that God himself will strengthen us 
He is the one who strengthens us in our soul. It is done through his word and through God the Holy Spirit, which helps us to be steadfast by means of the faith, going back to verse uh, verse. Verse, not, uh, verse 10, I'm in the wrong book, verse 10, that we are to uh, resist the devil by being steadfast by means of the faith. Then the next word is stenao, which means to be strong. So sterizo has that idea of making us firm, whereas stenao is a very close synonym, and it has that idea of, of making us strong, the opposite is asteneo, it is being spiritually weak. So this, it means to be spiritually strong and not to uh, cave in or panic uh, when under uh, adversity or persecution or even in torture. And then the last word is themeliao, uh, which has the idea of, it's related, the noun form has to do with a foundation. And so what this does is it goes back to the fact that we're in a spiritual house. The foundation is Christ, and he is shoring up our foundation. It's an interesting uh, word and metaphor to use, but he's the one who gives us that, that foundation and stability to face whatever uh, happens in our life. And then there is a benediction to him, that is to God, for all that he has provided, be the glory and dominion. In this world, human beings and in the invisible world, Satan seek to challenge his authority and his power. But ultimately, when we get to heaven, when we are in glory, God the Father will have established that reign and he will have defeated all of his enemies and Christ's enemies and he will have complete authority and rule over his creation forever and ever. And next time we'll come back and look at this, uh, the last three verses and wrap things up. I want to close in prayer, and then I'm going to uh, plug in the sound. I think, yeah, yep, I've got a sound cord up here, and I want to play this little video for everybody. It's a three-minute video, and it'll pro it may take me a minute or so to get it tubed up, but it is, uh, uh, it'll be worth it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, to re be reminded that we're living today in light of eternity, those eternal glories and that we'll suffer for a little while, just a blip on the screen, in light of the eternal glories that await us. That we need to live today in light of eternity, and as we attempt to do this, even in the midst of our, our failures, even in the midst of our weakness, you will strengthen us, you will enable us, and you will ultimately be glorified. We pray that you would challenge each of us not to take our Christian life lightly, not to uh, take our understanding of your word lightly, but that we may continuously strive to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, let me... Um,